Well, hello, everyone, on this first day of Unleavened Bread. A question for today, how big is the sacrifice of Christ? Is it big enough to cover your sins, my sins, Herbert W. Armstrong's sins? How big was the puddle of blood at the base of the stake? When they nailed our Savior to that tree, picked it up and let it fall, kerchunk, into a hole in the ground to keep it upright, he was the filthiest man who had ever lived. He was so filthy, the Father could not look at him. He forsook him, as Jesus himself said, Why have you forsaken me? He carried the sins of the whole world on his back, every one of them, all of yours, all of mine. His sacrifice was because God so loved the world, not the society and culture, but the people, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe on, or in him really, should not perish, but have eternal life. One of the most absurd winds of doctrine I have ever heard is that Christ was a created being. If so, all this that we've just discussed means nothing. The Father could simply have created another just like him. There would have been no risk except to a created being, and another just like him could have been created to do the job. In other words, we would have no Savior. If Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, was created, then a bride of the same caliber could also have been created. Why bother with putting man here, letting man go through all this temptation, sin, and sorrow? The present plan, as outlined in the Bible, would not have been necessary at all. The arguments for him having been created are all a striving over words, twisted words, and verses taken out of context, and a denial of Christ's sacrifice having been a unique, one-time answer for all people's sins. If Christ was created, we might as well throw the Bible out the window and forget it, for we have no Savior who cannot be duplicated. If he failed, the Father could create a new son and start over. No real risk, no problem. The Father and Son had enormous confidence they could pull the sacrifice of Christ off without a hitch, that his blood could cover all sins of mankind throughout man's history. It took a unique being who had always lived to make the price as high as it was. Now, before getting into the subject matter for today, I want to give you a disclaimer. My purpose, and you'll see why I'm saying this, is not to shut you up or to control you, because when you get into something like this, people begin to say, and they've learned this from experience, that, well, this is just governmental. This is trying to control us. This is trying to shut the sheep up. That is not my purpose whatsoever. I cannot shut you up. I struggle to control myself. You must control you. My purpose in this sermon is to point out how God thinks and help you see what you need to do to be like him. You are the only one who control, can control what you think, what you say, and what you do. God will not control you. I do not try to control you and will not. Self-control is proper government. 
controlling ourselves, our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes, and coming to be like God the Father and His Son. Now, going into unleavened bread here, it is very frequently the case that we discuss crumbs and small sins and trying to find all the little crumbs in our house and all the little crumbs in our cars and all the little crumbs in our lives. Today, let's not do that. Today, let's discuss leavened loaves. Let's discuss big chunks of sin because I feel that we have a huge leaven a huge, if you would, cancer that has spread through the whole church of God. I'm not talking about our little group or organization. I'm talking about the whole church, and to one degree or another, it includes us, because we are no better than anyone else. And before we're done, whether today or in the next sermon, because this will probably turn into two, I want to put Herbert W. Armstrong in perspective. Was he sinner or saint? Did he disqualify himself, or did he not? I mean as a minister, I mean as a Christian, as a, as a candidate for the kingdom of God. Not only him, but where do we stand? What should we do? It does seem that anything and anyone is fair game to the tongues today. We can talk about things in whatever negative way we wish. We can put anyone down. We can put anything down. And it is commonly done. Now, is this the way God thinks? Let's go to Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, and pick up with a problem that Paul addressed with the Jewish Christians of his day, those who were Jews who were converted. Verse 11 of chapter 5, Of whom we have many things to say, speaking of Jesus Christ here, and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. For when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the word of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. This was a problem that Paul faced, and I think it is a very serious problem that we face today. Many people read verse 12 and say, the time has come that we ought to be teachers, therefore I'll be a teacher. Now, that is not what Paul was saying. Paul says, as long as you people have known the truth, as much as you have heard over the years, you ought to be teachers, but you're not ready to be, is what he is saying here. You'll become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Well, now it's probably hard to find people in the greater church of God today who say, I need milk. Everybody says, I need meat. Well, maybe, maybe not. Let's examine some things today and see if what Paul is saying might apply to us. The tendencies of the past are the tendencies of today because human nature doesn't change. Human nature is the same always. Verse 13, For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Are we mature or are we babes? Let's see. Maybe in some ways we are mature. Maybe in other ways we're acting like babes. That's something we need to examine the scriptures and analyze our own lives and our own thoughts in the light of 
and see where we fit. Strong meat belongs to them that are of full age or maturity, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Through careful study, through diligent prayer, through hard knocks, they have their five senses, their minds, their emotions, exercised, uh, worked over, prepared to know good from evil and to be doing the good. Now he continues his thought. Therefore, leaving, or better translated, not forgetting, not forgetting the principles of the doctrine of Christ, not leaving these things behind, not forgetting them, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms or laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. In other words, the basic things we ought to have an understanding of. And some of those are included in the principles of the doctrine of Christ. The very basic things. Christianity 101, in other words. Have we sometimes... put our minds on more technical things, more, as we might term them, mature things, and somehow forgotten some of the very foundational principles of what Christianity really is all about. Have we gotten away from Matthew 5, 6, and 7? I've just been doing a series on that, because I think we need to go back and look at those and see if we might not be uh, below where we ought to be. Do we truly do unto others as we would have others do unto us? Herbert Armstrong is fair game for any wagging tongue. So is anyone else that we find that we might have found uh, a problem with or a sin of or a spot in or whatever, however you might term it. If we find fault with someone, they're fair game. Now, is there any scripture that says we ought to become expert in the sins of others? How is it that we somehow love to talk about someone else's sins, but boy, do we loathe anyone talking about our sins? Now, is this Christianity 101 or not? Are we happy to do unto others as we would have them do to us? What is more basic? What is more Christianity 101 than that? And having achieved that, what could be more mature than that? So while this is a very basic, fundamental, foundational principle of Christianity, doing unto others as we would have them do to us, it is one of the areas that people tend to be very immature about. And once this is mastered, once this is conquered, however basic and foundational it may be, it also reflects spiritual maturity. And however much we fall short of this so-called golden rule shows our level of maturity as Christians. Now let's go to the book of James. Very, very fundamental here. James 3. 
and beginning in verse 1. My brothers, be not many teachers. Now he said there in Hebrews 6, uh, Paul did, that we ought by now to be teachers. But here James gives a warning. Everybody wants to be a teacher today. Everybody, we're in the period of a time very much like the time of the judges, when every man leaned to his own understanding. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have understanding. I'm not saying that uh, I have all the answers or any one human being on this earth right now has all the answers. We are simply in a leaderless time. When Herbert Armstrong died, our leader died. And we've seen many scriptures to show that in the Minor Prophets series. <clears throat> but James warns, My brothers, be not many teachers or masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment. We need to think of this very carefully before we open our mouths to teach. And it seems like people brush by this and don't seriously consider that they may be, or will be, as it says here, shall be judged much, much harsher if they have taught others as opposed to just being taught. So any time you open your mouth, or any time I open my mouth to teach others, I am putting myself in great jeopardy, let's say double jeopardy, as a play on words on the game, the TV game, of greater condemnation. We need to think about this seriously. It scares me. For in many things we offend all. He's including himself, he's including you, and he's including me. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect or mature man, spiritually mature, and able also to bridle the whole body. The tongue, connected with the brain, or disconnected from the brain, if you will, is the hardest part of the body to control, James is saying. If you can control that, you can control the rest of your body. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so none of us have become perfectly mature, and none of us have perfectly controlled our tongue. And we're going to have a lot to say about the tongue today. The same is a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Horse is a pretty big animal, but with a little bit in his mouth, can control the whole horse. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, much, much larger than a horse, and are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small rudder or helm, whithersoever the, the operator or the governor desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things. Behold, now behold, how great a matter, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body, and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Now, those are pretty strong words about the tongue. For every kind of beasts, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and has been tamed, of mankind. They can train whales, they can train porpoises, they can train seals, they can train grizzly bears, tigers, lions, 
to do certain things and control them with words, with whips, with chairs, whatever. But the tongue, the little bitty tongue, can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, who's he talking about here? He's talking about Christians. James wrote this to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad in James 1.1. 1, 1. And we're part of those 12 tribes. And not only are we part of the 12 tribes of Israel physically, for the most part, but we are spiritual Israel, called out of a huger, a much larger physical Israel to be the very elect of God. That's what we're called to be. And that's to whom James was writing here. So he's talking to you, and he's talking to me. Full of deadly poison, verse 9, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Now God created mankind. We say we love God. We say we want to serve God. But we don't treat man made in the similitude, the image of God, with the same respect we do God. And James is saying this is not a good thing, that we are made in the image of God and we had better respect one another. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. Now that just is not the way God thinks. That is not the way God acts. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. We would be very careful, and are very careful, I think, in what we say about God, with a certain fear of retribution from him if we're not careful. But we think nothing of putting down princes, kings, presidents, uh, cursing them, and there's plain instruction in Romans 13 not to do that. And there's plain instruction right here not to do that. We have to respect the offices there. Had I known he was the high priest, I wouldn't have said that about him. I wouldn't have said that about that office, as one example in the Bible. Does a fountain send forth, verse 11, at the same place, sweet water and bitter? Can we say nice things about God and not say nice things about his creation? Can the fig tree, my brothers, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? I kind of doubt it. So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. The salt will permeate the whole thing, and the same lesson is there about leaven. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We think we can get away with saying some things with our tongue, but he says it's got to be one way or the other here. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conduct his works with meekness of wisdom. Not the clever, wonderful, witty things he might have to say, or the negative things, or the put-downs. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. There are a lot of people today who have bitter envying and strife in their hearts about Herbert Armstrong, about you, about me, about the ministry as a whole, about any and everything that is represented by the church of God today. Bitter envying and strife in the heart, where it becomes almost consuming at times. 
Is that the way God is? Is that the way Jesus Christ is? Don't lie against the truth. Let's be honest with ourselves. Because what I am talking about today is a major monster sin in the entire church of God. Verse 15, this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. It's of Satan the devil to have bitter envying and strife in our hearts. We can't glory in that. A lot of people glory in other people's sins. They major in other people's sins. This is earthly, sensual, and devilish to do. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. It's if the shoe fits, wear it time, brethren. We need to examine ourselves during the days of unleavened bread. We need to look at ourselves. I think sometimes we've gotten a little overbalanced and perhaps uh, too, maybe pharisaical is the word in counting all the little seeds of mint, cumin, and anise, or putting crumbs out of our houses and cars. It gets to where that's a two or three or four or five week project with some people, and they're so busy doing that, they don't really even have time to examine themselves. It's here these days to put sin out of our lives. And yes, I agree with the principle that we need to be putting all the small sins out, but at the same time, are we overlooking the weightier matters of judgment and faith and of mercy? Let's go heavy on the mercy here at this moment based on what we have to talk about. Are we so busy putting out crumbs we forget the loaves? Verse 17, the wisdom, and wisdom is the chief thing if you will read Romans, I mean, excuse me, Proverbs 1 through 7, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated. Now he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit here, repeating some of the same things that are listed there in Galatians. Pure, not having any wrinkle, not having any spot, not having any dirt, not having any filth, but something that is pure, something that is clean. Are our thoughts clean about others? Are our thoughts clean about everything? Then peaceable and gentle, easy to be entreated. Think of yourself for a moment. Is Are you easy to be corrected? Is it easy for you to take guidance, direction, uh, gentle hints? Or does that ridge of carnality come up still? Does our vanity, does our ego, does our pride rise up and we will find any way to defend ourselves, justify ourselves, instead of just saying, you may be right, I'll think about that seriously, I'll pray about that, I'll see if that's what's in my heart or not. Are we easy to be entreated? Full of mercy. I don't mean showing mercy under uh, very strict conditions where you just really don't have any other choice. But are you full of mercy? Am I full of mercy? Am I ready to forgive? 
Am I desirous of forgiving? Is my heart and my mind absolutely filled with mercy? Or do I fall somewhere very short of that? Is that one of the weighty matters that we are overlooking while we pharisaically look for crumbs in some cases? Oh yeah, we'll get the little things right, and we should. That's what Christ said there in Matthew 23. Yes, we should. But boy, (coughs) don't forget the weightier matters. Full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, not placing some people above others, and without hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is what Christ condemned the Pharisees for over and over and over again. Saying one thing, believing perhaps one thing, but doing another. Preaching, teaching, believing that we ought to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, but at the same time being full of venom, being full of unforgiveness, and not being merciful. These are the very basics of Christianity. Christ says very plainly in the Sermon on the Mount, if you do not forgive others, I will not forgive you. Whether you are in the kingdom of God or not, whether you are forgiven of your sins and whether the blood of Jesus Christ is big enough to cover them is based upon, in great part, your willingness to forgive others' sins. He was willing to forgive the whole world's sins if they would repent and turn to him. His sacrifice is that big. Is our attitude that big? Are we willing to forgive anyone who repents? Or will we hold against people what they did 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, or 100 years ago? We need to ask ourselves some pretty hard questions here. He will not forgive us unless we forgive others. Who is it you are not willing to forgive? How long is the list of people you are not willing to forgive? He will show mercy on those who are merciful, he said. Here again, Christianity 101. If we are not merciful and we are not forgiving, he will show no mercy and no forgiveness to us. He makes that statement. That's not Daryl Henson. That is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master, and soon coming king and ruler and savior who is willing to save us, who was willing to forgive and was willing to give his life for us. How much are you willing to give for me, for your brothers, your sisters, for Herbert Armstrong, for David, for whoever else you might have a ridge of resistance against? We need to ask ourselves this. Without hypocrisy, without saying, yes, I'm a Christian, and yet at the same time, not thinking and acting like Christ does. Where is that self-control? I can't control your attitude. I can't control mine a lot of the time. But I have to work at it day in and day out to fulfill these very basic doctrines of Jesus Christ. How can we go on to perfection if we're not living 
Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Verse 18 here in James 3, And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. This harkens back to Matthew 5, the very first part of the chapter. Blessed are the peacemakers. We have to be people who are willing and able and desirous of making peace. So many times in the church today, people make war. James goes on down and talks about this in chapter 4. I'm not going to go through it. You've been through it before. The problem is we're not living it. We still have pride. We still have vanity. We still think we are spiritually okay. It's you other jerks who are not. Now, am I spiritually mature is the question to ask. You have to ask yourself, just as I ask myself, am I spiritually mature? Am I spiritually okay? Am I living up to Matthew 5, 6, and 7? Am I someone of whom it would be said, now there is a man who will make peace. When I think of that person, he's a person or she's a person who wants peace and is willing to bend over backward to take it on the chin, to turn the other cheek and turn the other cheek in order to make peace. When accused, say, you're right, you got the right guy or the right gal. I'm a sinner. I'm sorry. I'm working on it. And not with a ridge of pride, but of true humility. When someone thinks of you, does the word humility, does the word meekness come to their mind? Is that something you personify? Or do they think, boy, there's a proud person. There's a person with a lot of vanity, a lot of ego, a lot of egocentric attitudes, narcissism, thinking of self, mind on self, caring about no one else, um, making negative thoughts about others. Or do they think of someone who is meek, who is humble, and who is doing his or her level best to make peace? Now, is this milk or is this meat? Perhaps I have to leave that judgment with you. It's milk in one sense because it's what he gave his disciples at the very beginning. And yet it's meat too because this is something that's very hard to chew. This is something that's very, very hard to live. No, we don't need in one sense the milk of going back to understanding what baptism is about, understanding what the resurrections are about, understanding these basic doctrines but it's the basic principles of living that then are the meat that we find hard to chew. Somebody says, I want meat. Do they mean, <clears throat> I want um, oh, great detail of understanding and depth on every little doctrine or every big doctrine, all the ins and outs of it, and this is meat to me? I'll tell you what meat is. Meat is being able to digest the things we're talking about today the very basic principles Christ laid down in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that we are having a horrible time in the church today living up to. Now let's go, while we're here, to Philippians 4. 
This is something very, very basic. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, in summation, he says, as a, an overall principle, maybe, you could term this, finally, if I can leave anything with you that is important, Paul might be saying, finally, brothers, whatsoever things are true, now let's be careful with that one because we've got to consider the whole context here and what he means by true. People can say, well, I know so-and-so about somebody, and I can say it because it's true. The question is, in that case, whether it be actually a fact or not is not the key. The key is whether it is pure, whether it is right to say, Oh, yeah, it might be true. It might be factual in that definition of true. But is it something that is true blue? Is it is something that follows the rest of this context? Let's read it. People have used that one word out of this verse <clears throat> to justify saying anything about anybody. Whatsoever things are honest or venerable, Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. Now, something might be true of someone, it might be factual, but is it of good report? If there be any virtue, now you look at somebody and you think, there is a rat, a long-tailed rat, a long-toothed rat, a smelly rat. There is a human being who ought to be in a gutter because that's where his mind is and that's how he lives and that's what kind of person he is. Now, it is your responsibility and mine if there is anybody among our brothers and our sisters in God's church, yes, they may be a long-tailed rat, but it is our responsibility, and Paul says it right here, if there be any virtue now, is there anyone who is total rat? I really rather doubt that. We wouldn't even be connected to God's church if there were not some virtue in us, if we were not doing something right, if we were not trying to do something right, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise. Now, maybe he's allowing for the fact maybe there's somebody that's just total rat. But we should not be looking for the dirt. We should not be looking for the teeth and the tail and the gray fur. We should be looking for any virtue, any praise. If we can find anything good, think on these things. If there is anything good about someone, find it and think on it. Emphasize the positive. That is the Apostle Paul's instruction for us. And God, who purified the scriptures seven times, I think that's Psalm 12, 6 or 6, 12, I forget, purified the scriptures seven times, had it included in the Bible. This is to be our attitude. This is to be our approach. And I think every last one of us has fallen short of this. We need to think about Philippians 4.8, a great deal. I'm going to back this up, and if you 
have adopted the idea that just because something was factual and true that it fits Philippians 4.8, I think you're going to find as we go through here that that contradicts a lot of scriptures. Now let's go back to Psalm 119 to begin here. Psalm 119. I'm going to take us through a bunch of scriptures and show you how God thinks. Show you what his approach and mental attitude and desire is. And we'll see as we go through and analyze ourselves as to how close we measure up to this. Now whether, we, whether it's milk or whether it's meat to us. Is it something we need to chew on or something that we've already accomplished and we need to go on from here? Psalm 119. 165. Here he says, Great peace have they which love your law, and nothing shall offend them. Did, did you hear what that said? Great peace have they which love your law, and nothing shall offend them. How easily offended are we in traffic, in church? at each other? Do we have the attitude that the psalmist had here in verse 164? Seven times a day do I praise you because of your righteous judgments. In other words, our mind, our attitude, our approach is so positive toward God that we praise him seven times a day and in so following that attitude we have the same attitude toward man that whatever they do to us will not offend us. They can call us names. They can uh, review our sins. But we will not be offended. We will not be upset by it. That's a big order. That's a tall order. This is a very, very difficult thing to live up to. Now, are we ready to move on? Or do we have some work here to do? Uh, let's go on back to 1 Thessalonians 5 now. 1 Thessalonians 5. These are the writings of God's apostles who were inspired to write Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5. And here I want to begin in verse 13. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, that is, speaking of those who are over you. Well, let's, let's read verse 12. And we beseech you, brothers, to know them which labor among you. He's speaking of the ministry here. And are over you in the Lord. Ooh, that hurts. Over you? Well, yes, they do have an oversight. Yes, they are shepherds. Now, I am very, very aware of Ezekiel 34, Jeremiah 23, and Malachi, the whole book. I really doubt there's anybody who's preached in this age more about that and dwelt on it more than I have. I know the problems and the sins that I and the rest of the ministry had and have. And I'm learning more as we go along. But that does not mean that God did not set us as shepherds, woeful as we have been. We had better be repenting. But this is talking about our attitude toward those who might be over us and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Now, is that being done today? Or is the ministry as a whole put down by virtually, well, I won't say virtually everyone, but by a large percentage of people today who have very little respect for? Now, I'm not sitting here and saying that 
we should demand respect. We should be respected basically because of the way we live, without hypocrisy, living our religion, serving you with all our hearts and minds, not out of constraint or not out of a hireling or not because of a paycheck, but because we want to take care of your needs and love you with all our hearts. Now that is why the respect should be there. And the reason the respect is not there is because we simply didn't do that. But still in all, Paul says, we need to establish, to build the kind of respect for each other that ought to be there. And once respect is removed, once trust is removed, it is very, very, very hard to build back. But that we must do. The ministers, including me, must repent. We must get rid of the hypocrisy and serve God with a full heart. To esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. They apparently were not, and we are not either as an overall church. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. It's not wrong to recognize uh, an attitude that is there, and we need to warn those who are unruly. We need to comfort the feeble-minded. We need to support the weak and be patient toward all men. That even includes the ministers. We need your patience, too, because we are recovering Laodiceans. We are recovering sinners. So be patient with all men, and that includes me. That includes the rest of the ministry. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. Be in a thankful attitude. Are we always in a thankful attitude, or do sometimes we just want to gripe? Yeah, I know we've been through a lot. You have been through a lot. We all have our war stories. But brethren, we have to move on. I listen to war stories from people, and I am patient most of the time with that. I have my own hurts. I have my own sins of the past. I have my own problems. I have things that were done to me in the past that were absolutely wrong to be done, and I've done wrong to others. We all have. But we've got to support one another and be patient with one another because we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Is one blacker than another? It, how big is the sacrifice of Christ? How big was the puddle of blood? How long is the list of people that you are unwilling to forgive? How long, then, is Christ's list of people that he is unwilling to forgive. If you have people on your list, he has you on his list. Because he says he will not forgive you or me if we do not forgive each other. That is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Christianity 101. Verse 15, See that none render evil for evil to any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men in the church, and even out of the church. Verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit. The Spirit of God is what? 
Well, we can read the fruit of his spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. On they go. Does that reflect our thinking? Does that reflect our attitudes? Don't quench that spirit. Despise not prophesyings or speaking with inspiration. Prove all things and hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace, he's a God of peace. Are you a man of peace, a woman of peace? Sanctify you wholly, and I pray God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calls you, who also will do it. And he may put you and me through an awful lot to cause us to come to have the attitudes that he's talking about here. Now let's go back to Proverbs, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in the Proverbs today to show how God thinks. So I'm not trying to highly correct you. I'm saying here on the first day of unleavened bread that we need to examine ourselves, that we need to put sin out of our lives. We need to get our thinking in line with God's thinking to control our own selves. This isn't mind control by me. This is not me trying to get brethren to shut up. This is how God thinks. So let's understand how he thinks. Proverbs 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the eternal and depart from evil. It shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. So the first thing here to consider is not being proud and vain about ourselves. And in such a way, as we'll see in many scriptures, that we put others down. Chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 16. 616. These six things does the eternal hate. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Okay, here is something that God gets livid about. Here are seven things he absolutely hates, cannot stand, will not look at. Okay? A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, thinks evil, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord among brethren. That's the main one I want to focus on right here. By the things that we say, we can sow discord, frustration, confusion among the brethren. Just the opposite of being a peacemaker. Anyone who sows discord among brethren is doing something that God hates, that are an abomination to him. Now let's go on to chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. Do we have a mouth that is froward, that is forward to say evil, unafraid to speak negative things about anything and anybody? That kind of attitude that lifts itself up in pride and arrogancy and is willing to put down other people. Here again, he says, that kind of mouth, I 
hate. And if you've been around the Church of God much in the last 10, 15 years, you hear a lot of that kind of tongue. You hear a lot of that kind of talk about the leadership, about each other, whoever, whatever. is fair game, it seems. Chapter 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Now again, if other people think about me, or if they think about you, does it come to their mind? Would it come to their mind? Be honest now. Would it come to their mind that you are the type of person who willingly, uh, openly, and of a great desire cover other people's sins? Do you cover sin? See, that's what the blood of Christ is all about, is covering sin, so that that sin cannot live, so that that sin will never be mentioned again. God says he puts our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. You can't get any further than that. That is what the blood of Christ is all about. The question is whether we recognize that it's that big or not. Love covers all sins. Or when people think of you or me, do they say, now there's somebody that if anybody has a fault or anybody has a sin, there's a person who's going to know about it. There's someone that can give you the inside dope. There's somebody who could write Ambassador Report or a book about Herbert Armstrong or, or have a thousand things to say about such and such a minister or such and such a brother or sister in the church. If you want to know the dirt, there's the person to go to. Would anyone think of you that way? Or are, or are you of a meek and quiet spirit whose intention and purpose is to cover sins? That's the way God the Father thinks. That's the way Jesus Christ thinks. They don't like sin. They want sin covered. They sent Jesus Christ to this earth to cover sin. That's what that sacrifice was all about, because we would die if our sins were not covered. So his mind, his thought, his purpose is to cover sin. And he is so willing. His mercy endures forever. How long does your mercy endure? How long does my mercy endure? God's endures forever. He is merciful as one of his greatest, strongest, attitudes and purposes and states of mind. Mercy is what you want. Mercy is what I want. Well, if we want it so badly, and God thinks that way, why is it we have such a difficult time extending mercy to other human beings? God says he forgets sin. Man remembers sin. Man repeats sin. Jesus Christ's whole attitude and his very reason for coming to this earth was to cover sin. Now, how much do you and I think like God? 
chapter 10, verse 13. In the lips of him that is understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. Verse 18. He that hides hatred with lying lips, and he that utters a slander, is what? A fool. In the multitude of words there wants not sin. If we have a lot to say, we're going to sin. But he that refrains his lips is wise. There again, we need to think about a situation. Let's say you're in a group of people. Would it be said of you or me, there's someone who restrains his lips. There's someone who is wise and doesn't jump in. And it's so easy to be like barnyard chickens. I've watched them. I grew up around them. And if they saw a chicken who had a few tail feathers missing, they would start pecking at the behind of that chicken until they pecked his whole rear end out and his insides began to fall out. And they pecked them and they pecked that chicken until he died. Is that the kind of chicken we are? A multitude of words there once not sin, but he that refrains his lips is wise. Am I, are you, the kind of person that someone would say of them, boy, if you talk to that person, you can't get a word in edgewise. There's a person who does not like to listen, they like to talk, they like to dominate, they do not know how to refrain or restrain their lips or their tongue. Now God is showing us here what he wants us to do and how he wants us to be. Verse 20, the tongue of the just is as choice silver, the heart of the wicked is little worth. Even the tongue of the just is like silver, choice silver, very refined, very pure, not full of gross, of fragments of evil, but like choice silver, 0.9999% refined. But the heart of the wicked, the whole heart is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. So here's a lot of instruction about us and what we do with our tongues. And of course what we say reflects what is in our hearts and minds. What does he say? Is there anything about the lips reflecting the heart? Out of the abundance of the heart, the tongue, the mouth, the lips speak. So if you are one of those, or if I am, who speaks a lot of negative and a lot of gossip and a lot of slander and a lot of evil, then that means it's a direct reflection of our heart and our mind. Now, we might justify ourselves and say, well, you know, I, I, I think purely, but this is the truth. These are the facts. Well, Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Maybe you don't even know the real facts. But you're sure willing to repeat what you've heard. Again, this is Christianity 101. Do we do unto others as we would have them do unto us? Do you really enjoy having your sins talked about? If you do, you're some kind of a masochist. Verse 31. The mouth of the just brings forth wisdom, but the froward tongue shall be cut out. 
any tongue that is a busybody, any tongue that repeats sin, who does not try to cover sin, says it shall be cut out. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable. They know what should be said and which, what should not be said. But the mouth of the wicked speaks, speaks frowardness. Or the word here in the margin is, well, frowardness is, it's an old King James language, but uh, quite willing to openly discuss evil. Chapter 11, verse 9. An hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor, but through knowledge shall a just be delivered. Why is it that we want to judge God's servants with our own tongues? At what point does that become idolatry, where we put our judgment of that person above God's judgment? Maybe God's not done with them yet. Maybe we ought to be merciful and kind and, and loving toward them and help the weak, support them, instead of put them down. Isn't that what we've read in 1 Thessalonians 5? A hypocrite with his mouth destroys his neighbor. So if you are destroying anyone by the things you say about them, you are a hypocrite. I am a hypocrite when I allow myself to do that. Because I say, I believe, I preach, to do unto my neighbor as I would have him do to me. And if I don't do that, if I put him down in a way that I would not want to be put down, I am a hypocrite. Do you know what God thinks of hypocrites? Read Matthew 23 about the Pharisees. Seven times he calls them hypocrites. Now let's go to 11.13. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit, isn't that what you and I want to be uh, judged by God as? He of a faithful spirit. Well done, you good and faithful servant who has a faithful attitude. He that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. There you go. That's what it's all about. Not repeating evil, not repeating sin, but concealing. That is not a passive, but an active thing. When I conceal something, now I may know it, I may have heard it, but do I conceal it? Do I hide it away? Do I put it in a box and sit on it so it doesn't get out? Or am I one who says, oh, I know that. Oh, you're talking about so-and-so. Oh, wait till you hear this. You think that's bad. Listen to this. Which are you, brethren? Be honest here. It's the days to put sin out of our lives. To think like God thinks. Chapter 12, verse 6. This just goes on and on. Chapter 12, verse 6. The words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood. To wait or anything that they can say that might draw blood from someone else. Anything that might hurt or put down or destroy the character of someone else. Remember what it says there in Matthew 5 again, or 6, whichever it is, I think it's the end of chapter 5, where it talks about calling someone a fool, 
saying anything against your brother without sufficient cause. Now we figure just cause they sinned is cause enough all so often. But that's not necessarily true. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. We'll get to that one here in a minute. The words of the wicked are to lie in wait for blood, to draw blood from someone else. But the mouth of the upright shall deliver them. See, see the contrast here? See the example of contrast that he's making? Some people just can't wait to draw someone's blood, and others deliver someone. How often do you see somebody, and I have met a few in my life, who, if you start bringing up dirt about somebody, will say, yes, but, boy, they sure were nice to somebody, or they sure did something good, or there's a person that I respect for this reason, They'll find something. If there's any praise, if there's any virtue, they're the kind of person that will find it. I could, two or three examples of people like that leap out in my mind as I say these things. I can't think of a hundred people like that. I can't think of a thousand people like that. But in all my life, and all my experience with God's people for nearly 50 years, two or three people leap to my mind. Because I remember when someone got uh, on, on the carpet to be trashed by whatever group was standing there, this person would say something good about them almost invariably. And it stuck out so much that I remember them. Now, I can think of a lot of people who have put down others. And I can think of myself in that category, too. Believe me. I have sinned. You have sinned. We have all sinned. But God is looking for the kind of people who don't wait for blood, but who deliver people from sin, who cover sin. That's the kind of person we need to be. That is the way God is. His whole purpose is to cover sin. 12.17. He he's a father. He wants to produce wonderful, peaceable, lovable children for his kingdom. He wants to produce a very responsive, loving, positive bride who will go in and work with the children in the millennium and the great white throne judgment and bring them to think the way God thinks because they don't think that way. It's a godless world. And he wants sin covered, gone, forgotten. He's going to banish Satan, if not kill him, eventually, to banish sin so that it cannot and will not ever be remembered. Who do we think we are to bring up other people's sins? That is absolutely contrary to the mind, the will, the purpose of Almighty God. Verse 17 of chapter 12. He that speaks truth shows forth righteousness, but a false witness deceit. There is that speaks like the piercings of a sword, ready to stick it in anybody, but the tongue of the wise is health. We'll say healthy things, helpful things, good things, any virtue, any praise. The lip of truth shall be established forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. 
Those who are peacemakers will ultimately find joy. Lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. You might say, well, I'm not, these aren't lying lips, I'm telling the truth. I doubt it. Of all the things that I have heard about Herbert Armstrong over the years, I frankly know some of them are not true. Some may be. We'll talk about him more later on, about what our attitude should be toward him and whether he's disqualified himself or not. But I'm talking about general principles here. Anytime I have been around or involved with uh, circumstance, well, let's say circumstances dealing with a car accident or an event at school or um, any item of news where I have been personally involved and knew the people involved, it is almost invariable that when it comes out in the newspaper, the facts will be distorted, the names will be wrong, some of them right, but any article I've ever read, none of it was completely factual. The reporter got things mixed up. He got the events mixed up, he got the names mixed up, got the wrong person dying, the wrong person preaching the funeral. Whatever it was, they almost invariably get something wrong. And you think about that anytime you have been involved. It's usually <coughs> all balled up and not quite right. I hear things about me. And, oh yeah, there's a certain amount of truth to them. And sometimes more than I wish, embarrassingly enough. But never is it actually as it occurred. I have never heard anybody put me down and get their facts all right. Oh, they got the right guy, I have no doubt of that. But they get the story all garbled up. And some of it is true, some of it's not true. It's twisted, it's slanted, it's based on someone's opinion, and never come out right. Well, now, if it's not right, and it isn't factual, is it a lie? Yes, it is. And sometimes we might re be repeating things about somebody that might not all be true, even though it was given to us as God-breathed truth. We must be very, very careful that we do not pass along an evil report that might or might not be true, may only be partially true, may be twisted by someone who didn't like that person. There are a lot of factors involved. And we have already read, and we're going to read some more, verses which show that it's best just to keep our big, fat mouth shut. And if there be anything good or anything virtuous about somebody, look for it, search for it, find it, and say something good. You know what? This is stepping on a lot of toes, namely yours and namely mine. But it's not me stepping on your toes. These are scriptures. All we're doing is reading the scriptures here. And underlining, emphasizing what they actually say. <clears throat> now let's go on. Chapter 14, verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 7. Go from the presence of a foolish man when you perceive not in him the lips of knowledge. Get away from people like that. Sometimes we need to either just get away or tell them, I don't want to hear that. Do you have that kind of courage? Do you have the ability to speak up and say something good about that person if you can think, find anything 
Or do you have the courage to tell somebody, we shouldn't be saying these things. Let's find something that has virtue. Let's find something good. Or if we can't find anything about this person good, let's talk about something else. 1421. He that despises his neighbor sins. Who is your neighbor? Well, we're all neighbors, brethren. If we're in a part of the church of God, we're neighbors, whether we live next door to each other or not. He that despises his neighbor is sinning. If we despise any whom God has called, we are sinning. And we are sinning not only against that person, but against God who called them. Isn't that what James said? We won't speak evil of God. Why would we speak evil of those who are created in the similitude of God? But he that has mercy on the poor, happy is he. That big weightier matter of the law, mercy, comes right back into the picture here. Chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. Are you known as one who has a soft answer, who is able to turn away wrath from people? Or are you the kind that goads, that stirs up anger, that pushes at someone? Verse 4. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. What's a breach? A break in the attitude, the spirit, the mind, the person, the character. A wholesome tongue, though, is a tree of life. Isn't the tree of life that which we wish? Chapter 15, verse 23. A man has joy by the answer of his mouth and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Something fitly spoken that is good that produces good. How good is it? Verse 26, The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the eternal, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. All right, here it tells you the pure words are pleasant words. That's what we need to be after. Uh, verse 28, The heart of the righteous studies to answer. He thinks about what he says. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things, just like opening a dam. Mention so-and-so, wham, here it comes. Hits you right between the eyes. But the wise, the righteous, thinks about the answer. He doesn't just pour it out. 16.6, I'm going to run out of time here in a little bit. By mercy and truth, iniquity is purged, and by the fear of the eternal men depart from evil. Mercy and truth purges iniquity. Do you promote iniquity or do you purge it out? 16.24 Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. It isn't all negative here. He tells us what the attitude should be. 16.28 A forward man sows strife, Plant strife, creates strife, and a whisperer separates chief friends. Very close friends can be separated by the whispering of the tongue. Why, oh why, is there so much of this in here, brethren? Why do we just go from chapter to chapter, verse to verse to verse? I mean, can't God just say it once and that's enough? 
Can't I say it once and that's enough? Can't you tell yourself once and that's enough? No. God repeated it over and over and over again so that we might begin to pick up on it. He's not wasting his time or his words. He knows this is something that needs to be repeated over and over because the tongue is very, very hard to control. 17.9 He that covers a transgression seeks love. But he that repeats a matter separates very friends. He that covers a transgression seeks love. There's faith, there's hope, there's love, Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13. What is the greatest of those three? Love. If we have not love, we have what? We can have all knowledge. We can have the meat. We can have the knowledge. We can know. We can have all this great insight. We can understand all prophecies and exactly how they're going to work out. But if we don't have love, we have what? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Those are the words of God through Paul. Put in the Bible. He that covers a transgression seeks love. God is love. God's purpose and attitude in the universe is to cover, hide, conceal, get rid of, put down, put away sin. That's why our Savior died. That's why we have a Passover. But that Passover is taken in vain and unworthily in the wrong attitude if we don't have the same deep, abiding desire to forgive other people's sins. It's wasted. Do we waste the Passover? Do we waste what Christ went through? With his blood draining out on that ground? Do we understand or begin to grasp and comprehend what it is to waste the sacrifice of Christ? And what God will do to any who do waste that? That is a precious sacrifice. That was a precious life that died. That was the Son of God who died. But I waste it if I waste you. I waste it if I put you down. I waste it if I say negative things about you. And you do me. And we do Herbert Armstrong. Or we do whoever it is that is the chicken with his guts hanging out of the moment. He that covers a transgression seeks love. 17.4 A wicked doer gives heed to false lips, and a liar gives ear to a naughty tongue. Do we give ear to filth? Do we listen? 17, 19 through 20. He loves transgression that loves strife. He that exalts his gate seeks destruction. He that has a froward heart finds no good. Can't find anything good about that person. And he that hates a perverse tongue or has a perverse tongue falls into mischief. There are those who just can't find good in anybody. 
or they can't find good in somebody in specific. It's hard to find anybody who does not have a grudge or a, an attitude or a, an unwilling, unforgiving spirit toward somebody. Father, mother, brother, sister, wife, ex-wife, husband, ex-husband, mother-in-law, brother-in-law, father-in-law, uh, co-worker, boss, somebody they have a ridge of unforgiveness against. Preacher, teacher, somebody. President, king, somebody they just can't help but put down at every point they get a chance, in their own mind or verbally. Can find no good. Well, if you can't find good, just shut up. My grandmother didn't say it quite that way, but if she said, if you can't find something good to find to say about somebody, don't say anything. But that is so hard to do, isn't it? And it's so hard to be willing to forgive everybody. We are to give a cup of cold water to our enemies. We are to heap coals of fire by doing good to our enemies and those who persecute us and despise us and misuse us and to leap for joy when we're persecuted for righteousness' sake. All too often we're persecuted for what we did do, and that isn't acceptable to God. It's only when we're patient with when we are accused of something we didn't do that it is a righteous persecution and acceptable to God. 17, verse 27. He that has knowledge spares his words, not voluble, not high volume in his words, spares his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit, attitude, positive. Even a fool, when he holds his peace, is counted wise. I mean, even if you've still got it inside, don't let it out for the world to see and hear. And he that shuts his lip is esteemed a man of understanding. Chapter 18, verse 4. The words of a man's mouth are as deep waters, and the wellspring of wisdom is a flowing brook. It is not good to accept the person of the wicked, to overthrow the righteous in judgment. A fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calls for strokes. I want to see that person punished. I want to see that person put down. I want to see that person fired, discharged, gotten rid of. I am here to give strokes. I am here to lay the lash on people. How about you? How about me? Do we lay the lash on people? Do we call for strokes or for forgiveness and mercy? A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. The words of a talebearer are his wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. They hurt clear down. Is it our goal and purpose to hurt people? We say hurtful things, as long as it doesn't hurt me. I don't care if it hurts them. That's too often the case. Are we here to hurt or to help? Are we here to support the weak, the sinner? God, Christ did not die for perfect people. Who did Christ die for? Scripture plainly says he died for sinners. He wanted to obliterate our sins. Who are we to want to perpetuate sin? If it's the glory of God to cover sin... Why do we major in revealing 
sin. Maybe this is a good time to stop this. I'm about the end of the tape. We'll pick it up here next time.